Accessing library computer data. Level 9 authorization required. Command codes verified. Welcome to Moms Going Boldly, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Moms Going Boldly is two moms who love Star Trek and who also happen to have children on the autism spectrum. We talk about the new Star Trek Discovery TV series, as well as any autism issues we see along the way. I am your host, Elizabeth, and with me is my co-host, Vicki. Hi, I'm Vicki. We are Moms Going Boldly. And welcome back to Moms Going Boldly, where today we are talking about Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 11, Sukal. But before we get into that, I wanted to let you know, Vicki, that we survived the atmospheric river, which apparently was five on a scale of five of water that was being propelled by the bomb cyclone, they called it, so named because of the way it forms quickly with dropping pressure. I don't know. I'm not a meteorologist. But anyway, we got three and a half inches of rain in 24 hours. So uh, you mentioned mudslides. Was that a problem or no? There were some that closed off some smaller routes in the Sierras, but not too bad. Oh, good. Um, I did not hear any reports of major slides for the burn scars, so that was good. Now, I might have missed something because I don't scour the internet, but nothing you know, popped up in, in my news feed about a major slide. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it is good. It's yeah. really great. Yeah. And then you guys had a little bit of some weather, too. Yeah. Well, they called it a nor'easter, which brought flashbacks to October 2011. Yeah. But it was just a lot of wind and a lot of rain. No snow. As far as I could tell, no trees came down. One of my neighbor's branches came down. You know, my scarecrow blew away, but I found it. Oh, but good. I don't think we had any damage here in town. I don't know if other places did. But it We was... have to watch the wind, too, because sometimes where we are, we're, you know, we're at elevation, and we've got mountains on, on either sides of us, and so sometimes when the wind comes roaring over one summit, it'll then roll through our little area and then back up another hill and then make little downdrafts. Yeah. And we've learned the hard way that if we don't pull down our patio umbrella, it will fly over our two-story house and land in the street in front of the house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when all of a sudden the wind kicked up, we did a really fast run outside to secure the patio umbrella. Yeah, yeah. Fortunately, mine were already in for the season yeah. because mine have flown over the railing and pretty much landed. It was amazing how close it was to my car and it didn't hit it. Oh, but, oh thank yeah. goodness. Wow. So. Well, let's talk about today's episode where we get to see weather of a different kind. That's a bit of a stretch, but we'll go with it. <laughs> so did you enjoy this episode? You know, I did, but I found it really draggy. Mm. I know time-wise it was a longer episode than most, but I just found that it dragged. Okay. And interesting. I remember the first time watching it thinking it dragged and now having to watch it for a second time knowing that we weren't going to get anywhere in this episode. Really. Yeah. I liked it. It was interesting, but it felt long to me. And I think sometimes that happens when they have a story that's longer than like a single episode that's going to take longer to tell than a single episode and then right. they stretch it out to two episodes but then they stretch it out to two episodes. Right, right. And there isn't always the necessary story elements to make it a two-part episode. This is really like an episode and a half story. Yes. I would agree with that. Yeah. So some things went on a little longer than they had to, like they were kind of filling in time to make it a two-parter yeah, or a two-episode story. So let's dig in. We start this episode where we left off the last episode in the mess hall during the memorial service for Giorgio. And we are looking things now from Adira's perspective. And they're looking at the crew and feeling, you can tell that they use a sound element to make it as if they're watching from a distance. 
Yes. Like the sound of the crew is in a distance and, you know, not really connecting. And then Stamets comes along and seems to understand how Adira is feeling and tells them that they are part of the crew now and this is their crew. Yes. And then in the middle of this, Gray appears and Adira speaks to him and... Stamets recognizes that Gray is back. And so actually after like saying, shame on you, or if we weren't at a memorial <laughs> service, I would have words for you or something like that. Right. In Gray's general direction. Leaves so that Adira and Gray could have a conversation. Right. I, you know, Stamets is turning out to be a good dad. Absolutely, yes. And I like it. I like this side of Stamets. And I like this family unit that is evolving. Yes. But the memorial service is interrupted when the computer informs Stamets that they have a life sign on the Kelpian vessel that's in the nebula where the burn started. And there's this, how can that be possible? It's been 125 years and how can someone be alive? And they think, you know, is it the original Kelpian scientist? And Saru said, no, actually she was pregnant because she had these marks on her forehead. Um, So it's probably the child. So why do you think he didn't mention that? Right. Thank you. Because Tilly was pointing out the radiation scars. So why- right, that would have been the time to say, no, she's pregnant. Right. That's, you know, and, you know, maybe if they had thrown a little bit of information saying, oh, well, we don't talk about that in our culture and made it sort of culturally taboo to talk about the things on the forehead to mean pregnancy, that might have explained it. Right. They didn't even do that. No, it was odd. I agree. So they go to the nebula. This is where my weak storm reference comes in. The nebula's got radiation and turbulence and they're having a really hard time keeping the ship safe and they're losing their shields and, you know, they're going to get radiation poisoning and Detmer's doing her best, but she's fighting a nor'easter. Right. <laughs> that she said the storm shouldn't have been that heavy. Yeah. So Book says, hey, I've got this ship. It's got good shields and it can morph so I can get in there and get you more information about the life sign. And, you know, I got to tell you, I love that morphing ship. It's so cool. It is. I like it too. (laughs) This is so cool. They get there and he gets radiation poisoning, but the autopilot kicks in and he's got enough information that he finds the life size and he says he found a pocket for Discovery to jump into. So he comes back. He gets radiation treatment. He's all good. And Burnham and Saru and Culver are going to beam down to the ship where there is atmosphere and limited radiation exposure, though there is still some. And there's this conversation with Book and Burnham where Burnham says she's worried about Saru's objectivity. Yeah. (laughs) Well, first, we already (laughs) saw that she has reason to worry. I know that. Saru's objectivity has been an issue this entire season. Exactly. I'm sorry. Hello, hold up a mirror. That's what I was going to say, because her objectivity is not anywhere near where it should be, historically. Right. You know, she's not objective about anything. Exactly. And she never has been. We've said that from the first episode. She was raised by Vulcans, but she just goes off. You know, on emotion all the time. Yep. So, yeah, that was weird. (laughs) I was like, okay then. (laughs) And again, it would have been great if there had been something like a little bit added to that which says, I realize I am not, you know, the picture of objectivity myself. But in this case, then it would have shown some self-awareness and some depth and, you know, understanding of how she approaches things too. That Sometimes that's an issue for her too. And so I think that, you know, if they could just have added that to it, then we'd be like, okay, then she knows. Good. All right, yeah. moving on. But instead it was sort of like, really? But there is a scene before she leaves with Tilly that I really, really liked. So Saru makes Tilly, who's his acting first officer, he puts her in command of the ship when he leaves to go down to the crashed ship in the nebula to find the child of the 
Kelpian scientists. And he even says via subspace communication to Admiral Vance that, you know, she is my number one. You know, she's the only choice. To which I was thinking, no, really, she's not. She isn't. Again, they really should have just given her a bloody promotion. If they had given her a promotion to, like, lieutenant and talked a little bit more about her, you know, experience in the command training program, I think that would have made this work. Instead of saying, Ensign Tilly's in command. Right. <laughs> Ensign Tilly is in command over all these other commissioned officers with experience that I have on my ship. It's a consistency thing. I have absolutely no problem with Tilly being in command. I like the character. I think she does a great job. It's this sort of just this, it doesn't make sense. No, it's ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. There's a scene in their quarters. I guess she and Burnham still share quarters. Yeah, I figured that out a couple episodes ago. When the cat... So, she, so even though she's promoted to acting first officer, she still has to share quarters like an ensign. Did she get anything out of this? Did she get a raise? <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> so all the authority, all the responsibility, but not really any authority or the person. Exactly, and that's what we yeah. said when he first offered it to her. Yeah. The conversation in their quarters was actually really cool because it had this element of vulnerability and interconnection that was really neat. And what it was, was Michael Burnham talking to Tilly about how Captain Giorgio, not Emperor Giorgio, Captain mm-hmm. Giorgio of the Senju had on her command chair, there was the, I guess, a screw holding the armrest in place that was slightly imperfect. And it had a metal burr on it. And the captain would put her hand on her armrest and rub her thumb against the metal burr to help her while she was thinking in difficult situations. It was like they were using stimming to help with concentration. Exactly, to help her focus, yes. So she told her about how this metal burr had been there. And every time that captain was faced with a difficult situation, she would rub her thumb on this. And by the time that Captain Giorgio put Michael in charge as temporary commanding officer, she reached for that metal burr and it had been rubbed smooth. And even I think she said it was like concave, which was a lovely image of how the leader has to project leadership and confidence, but still may use tools to help them stay focused and help them with their internal conflicts, such as stimming on a metal burr. So that was a really great story. I really liked that story. And I liked that example of just how everyone has to deal with the emotions that come with trying to make decisions and doing the right thing. But I also liked that they made Tilly number one and, you know, everybody congratulated her, but nobody took the time to realize how apprehensive she has to be about this. Yeah. And Burnham, knowing her as well as Burnham knows her, knew that she needed a pep talk, for lack of a better word. So I liked that old friendship that we really haven't seen so much of this season, just because the season's been all over the place, popped back up. Yeah, I agree. I, I liked it too. It was a very warm and kind and helpful thing to do. So we have Culber and Burnham and Saru beaming down to this crashed ship. And, you know, of course, everybody's worried about them because there's radiation and Stamets is worried about Culber and Stamets is saying, you know, we have our family here now. And Culber's like, I have to do this because this child's been alone for potentially years and may need therapy. And so you had another reference there to this family unit that is forming with Adira and Culber and Stamets. Uh, So they go down to the ship and as soon as they beam 
men things are weird. Burnham beams in as a trill mm-hmm. in a Red Riding Hood costume. Culver beams in as a Bajoran. Saru beams in as a human being whose heels touch the ground. Right. He's very he must, excited about that. He had to love that. He the must actor. have loved that. The must actor. Must so much more comfortable. And they figured out, finally, eventually, that they have beamed into a simulation that exists to help the Kelpian child. And that's why they beamed in looking different. The simulation sort of works them in. I wish they had kind of explained why the simulation worked them in different. That's my question. I don't understand why their appearance had to be altered. The guy yeah. tells them it's to be consistent with the program. But there's humans in the program. And Kelpians in the program. Right. And if human was a problem, then why did they make Saru a human? Exactly. It didn't really make any sense. It didn't. If they had beamed in with just the costume change, that would have made sense to yeah. me. Because then it would have been like, okay, the, the program wouldn't have recognized the costumes from the past or the future, you know, the uniforms. So putting him in a costume that meshed with the program's knowledge would have made sense. But changing their species identity didn't make sense to me. No, not at all. It's especially since they changed one to human. You could imagine first that they just didn't want to have them appear human. But when the one that wasn't human was changed to human, it doesn't make sense. And, and again, it would have been one of those things would have been nice for just a little bit of additional exposition to explain why. Right. We're going to pause right here for a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, Doug Gramley here from Yeah, That Can't Be Good. Doug here from the 13th Warehouse. If you are a fan of Eureka, Please join Kim, Vicky, Skip, and myself over at Yeah, That Can't Be Good for an episode-by-episode podcast of all things Eureka at EurekaRewatch.com. If you're a fan of Warehouse 13, please join Kim and Vicky over at the 13th Warehouse at the13thwarehouse.com. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us on Twitter at Eureka Warehouse. And we're back. So... Here they are in this artificial environment, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And they actually encounter the child, who's now an adult. It's an adult Kelpian. But as they suspected, he has a childlike nature. You know, he has been alone for a long time and has the mind of a child. And so they have to treat him very carefully. So they enter this place that I call the Escher Hollow. It's just full of stairs. It looked like an Escher drawing. So anyway, they enter this space called the Escher Hollow. They find him. He freaks out because they're trying to explain to him that they're here to rescue him. And he's like, which program are you from? And then when they said, we're not from a program, he freaks out. And there's this locked door that is locked from the outside that's clearly supposed to be keeping something in. And as soon as he freaks out, the something starts banging on the door. And he said, you awaken the monster or something like that. And then he takes off. So Culber and Saru go after him. And Michael says she's going to deal with the monster. So she goes into the room where the monster's locked in, and it's some kind of smoky, ethereal, really cool use of CG thing floating around. And she has a rock to protect herself, but then she puts it down, and she tries to make first contact and says, what are you, and who are you, and I'm Michael, and I'm not going to hurt you, and it disappears. So then she goes back out to the Escher Hollow room, and when she tries to talk to, I think... How did she get on the ceiling? She fell, but then she started falling up. Right. But I can't remember what triggered the fall. I thought it was chasing the monster, but I could be wrong. You're right. I think she just falls from the staircase. She falls upwards, lands on the ceiling, and then she's joined by Sukal, the child. And we learn the name of the child because Saru finds some writing, and I'll talk about that scene in a second. She decides to play the role of a program. And I, I really actually liked this. I thought that was very clever on her part. She plays the role of a program, a program designed to teach Sukal how to interact socially. And she's trying to get information from him 
but he is so sensitive about some issue related to his family that he takes off. And so she doesn't get anywhere with him. Meanwhile, Culber and Saru are exploring a different part of the hollow environment. And that's where they discover the child's name is Sukal, which means end of suffering. And it's supposed to be a name that you give a child after a traumatic event. The next child born is supposed to have this name under Kelpian culture. Right. And they meet part of the program, an elder Kelpian who is there to help Sukal understand his Kelpian history and his Kelpian culture. And there's a reference to a story about some kind of sea creature that requires Kelpian children to acknowledge what they fear. And so they come to the realization that the monster is the program's manifestation of this creature from the story that wants Sukal to deal with what scares him and he won't, which is pretty clear already. Meanwhile, on Discovery, they're not just hanging around floating in the nebula. There's a ship that they spot on sensors and it has a Federation reading. Now, of course, Tilly is now in the captain's chair. She's sat down in the captain's chair and she's got her Captain Killy face on and she's like, this doesn't make any sense. Why is there a Federation ship out here? We didn't know about any Federation ships and as a matter of fact, before they left, Admiral Vance told them that the Emerald Chain was moving towards, oh, I've lost the name. What is Kaminar. the Kelpian homeworld called? Kaminar. Kaminar, thank you. Moving towards Kaminar. And they're certain that this is to draw out Discovery so she can get the spore drive. So Vance says, we'll take care of Kaminar. You guys go take care of this survivor. Once again, not reacting in a way that I would expect him to react. At least a little bit more supportive than he's been in the past. So anyway, so they're like, there shouldn't be a Federation ship out here. Why is there a Federation ship out here? It's been 125 years. If they were stripped by the berm, wouldn't you set course for home and be 125 years away from this place? And so they realize that it's something else. And, and Tilly figures out how to look and they realize that, oh no, it's Osiris' ship. She's coming to get them. So we've got two things going on. And, and it's funny because we have the ticking clock scenario when they're like, oh, well, we can only stay down there for four or five hours before radiation is going to kill us. And then you've got Osira coming. And so there's all this time pressure is now happening on both the away team and the ship coming together. So they go to look for Sukal. Sukal is supposed to be in his fortress because that's where he goes when he's afraid and he likes to build little monuments out of rock in order to protect him from the monster. Then they realize that, oh no, they're having a problem. They got to get back to the ship. And he starts to freak out. And when he does, they actually get destabilization of the dilithium in discovery he almost triggers another burn when he freaks out and they figure out oh my goodness he may be the source of the burn which doesn't make sense to me at all oh no it doesn't but go ahead (laughs) (laughs) so saru actually sings him a lullaby to calm him down so when they discover that osiris coming and saru's like i gotta get back to the ship i'm the captain and culver's like i have to stay i gotta take care of this wounded soul who needs good therapy and michael says no no you both have to stay Saru, you have to stay because you're the only one who can calm him down. I will go and take care of the ship. So they make that decision and Book is going to beam her back because the Discovery has left the nebula and you know now they're dealing with Osiris. Osiris trying to get on the ship and they don't have their shields because of the damage made by the nebula. Because their shields are not at 100%, Osiris goons get on board and they grab Stamets and they put on the metal crown of control and he's no longer in control of himself and so he's going to run the spore drive on Osiris instructions because they've put the crown of control on. I'm just making that up. I don't know what it's actually called. <laughs> Book beams Michael at, onto his ship and they're going to rejoin the Discovery so that she can help ward off Osira. But Osira's already on board because Stamets is in control. He wasn't able to jump away. She pulls Tilly out of the captain's chair 
when Samet's under control, both the Discovery and the Viridian jump away. They somehow expand the spore drives field around the Viridian and they spore drive away. Poof. Michael and Book are left just outside the nebula and Saru and Culber are on, still on the planet getting radiation poisoning. The planet, by the way, that I didn't even mention before, like apparently is like 100% dilithium. This is a planet made of dilithium. But there is one ray of silver lining, and that is Adira has also beamed down to the planet. And they went to Book's ship. I think they might have stowed away. Book, I don't think Book knew they were there. And took all of Book's radiation medicine and then beamed down to be with Culber and Saru. So that's going to add a new layer to the continuation of the story when we get to it next time right about how adira's presence is going to change things and probably be very helpful oh sure because otherwise they're going to die they're already feeling the effects and that was something that i you know that i didn't point out when they beamed into the holographic environment all of their radiation equipment disappeared which may have been because they were in a holographic environment and it just sort of was subsumed into the program or maybe the program didn't allow them to bring anything in so but we don't know i just have a question these programs were created by the mother to keep her child safe until he's rescued. Right. So why aren't these programs teaching him that people are going to come and rescue him? You know, the other holograms seem to know that they were, what was the quote they used? The anticipated input. Yes. So yeah. all of these holograms seem to know that they were the anticipated input. Why doesn't this child, weren't they there to teach him that all of yeah. this time? That's a good question. Do we learn maybe in the next episode that the programs were somehow, oh, what am I trying to say here, um, damaged by the radiation, that they that particular element didn't get communicated? Well, we learned in this episode that the programs were damaged. That could be. And that yeah. could also be why they changed species when they beamed the in. The program damaged, yeah. Yeah, if the program's damaged. But I remember in the next episode, but I don't remember specifics. Right. So I don't know. But I was just confused as to why when they mentioned outside the child i'm calling him a child freaked out freaked out right because yeah. i assume that these programs are teaching him all of this time that somebody was going to come and rescue him it's a good question and I, I can't remember if they fill in those gaps in the next episode i don't either i don't either well, well we'll have to hope that happens <laughs> So I liked this episode. I mean, like I said, I thought parts of the drag, you know, they added elements to it that probably didn't need to be added to make for a tight story. But I did like it. Yeah, I liked it too. I just thought, like I said earlier, it, it was long. It just seemed it didn't need to be as long as it was, as draggy as it was. And other than that, any other thoughts? I just thought it was funny that Reno just gave Adira her badge to transport. No questions yeah, asked. Yeah, but you know what? You can see that with Reno. Yeah. She, she's contrarian. You want my badge? Sure. You're going to beam down to the planet full of radiation? Sure. Yeah. But, you know, I think Reno recognizes that Adira is more than who they appear to be. True. And that would be kind of consistent with the character in that the character has a core of wisdom Mm -hmm. and... As wry as she can be, she's very insightful. That seems less out there than some of the other things. <laughs> I didn't really think it was out there. I just thought it was funny that they said, could I have your badge? And Reno just gave it to them. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's it. That was what we thought of Sukal. Then we're going to get all the, hopefully get all these questions answered in the next episode, which is entitled, There is a Tide with an ellipses, dot, 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 afterwards. I don't remember what that title refers to, so I'm looking forward to I remember the episode, I believe, although I could have the last two combined in my head. We'll see. 
So we invite our listeners to join us next time when we talk about Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 12, There is a Tide. We'll see you then. We'll see you next week. You can continue exploring the universe with Moms Going Boldly by following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash momsgoingboldly and on Twitter at momsgoingboldly. The music used on Moms Going Boldly is Without Limits by Ross Bugden Music. On Twitter, at Ross Bugden. Licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license, creativecommons.org. You can listen to Moms Going Boldly on Podbean, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Player FM. And we're now also available on Apple Podcasts. Transfer complete.